Hello, and welcome to The World Ahead on Economist Radio. I'm Hal Hodson, The Economist's technology correspondent in London. This future-gazing series of podcasts will examine an assortment of speculative scenarios, what-if conjectures, and provocative prophecies. Some will be more likely to come true than others. But thinking about possible futures can help us understand the present and the various paths along which events might unfold. Today we are asking, what if companies had no permanent employees? It's theoretically possible that at some point companies could say, rather than having the hassle of having lots of employees, what we'll do is we'll use this super liquid and efficient platform to simply hire and fire people on a daily basis. And what foodstuff will be sustaining mankind in the future? If we could find a way to scale up insect production, it could potentially be very, very good for the environment and a much greener source of protein than than the sorts of things we eat now. But first, in 2015, the members of the UN pledged that by 2030, all girls and boys will complete free, equitable and quality primary and secondary education. And in 2016, a commission of the great and good recommended increasing annual spending on education in developing countries from $1.2 trillion to $3 trillion by 2030, in part to ensure every child completes school. I'm joined on the phone by the economist's John McDermott to ask the question, what if that were to happen? Hello there, John. Hi, Hal. So what is the current state of global school attendance rates? There are more children going to school than ever before. If you actually look at the share who are not attending primary school across the world, that has fallen from a whopping 28% in 1970 to just 9% in 2016. But that success, that progress, hides a couple of wrinkles. The first is that the remaining 9% of kids who aren't going to primary school are hard to crack and have hardly budged in the last decade. The second wrinkle is, though, that while lots of kids may attend primary school, at least at some point, only a minority in developing countries actually finish school through 16. But so hypothetically, if every child did go to these schools and, you know, we're relatively close, 9% away, would the benefits of this happening, would it be greater levels of knowledge all over the world? You would think so, wouldn't you? And I don't know what your schooling was like, but... I think just about after the end of 12 years in some gruesome Scottish institutions, I ended up knowing a little bit more by the end than I did at the beginning. Yet that's not actually true in a lot of the world. And there are some grim stats that show if you want to know where children who don't know very much and aren't learning very much are, then you better go to a school. So just one example is that in half of a sample of developing countries that the World Bank did recently, they found that only about kind of half of females who left school after the age of 11 could read a sentence. So John, if getting more children into schools is not necessarily improving their education, is it doing anything good for these kids? Well, here's the twist. Even if children aren't learning very much at school, the evidence suggests that it's really helping them to attend. So why is that? Well, partly it's a labor market signal if you can sit through seven years of grueling boredom in a classroom then maybe you've got some level of conscientiousness it's also though about picking up good habits and good behaviors and this seems particularly relevant to girls and why a lot of people in the global education point to the importance of getting girls to school 
even if girls don't seem to learn much maths and English, say, they do seem to learn, for example, nutrition and other health behaviors. They also, interestingly, seem to be less likely to fall pregnant as teenagers. That's interesting, John. And are there any other benefits to being in school? There do seem to be other benefits. It's a good place to get a new job or to learn where you might get a new job, for example. So it seems to be that there's quite a lot of positive employment outcomes from going to school, even if there's not much evidence you learn much while you're there. And I think just reflecting on whether it would be a good thing if every child went to school, there is a tantalizingly contrarian view that that says it wouldn't matter because education outcomes are still very poor. And that should spark lots more education reform. It should spark politicians into action. But at the same time, we shouldn't be too down. There has been a lot of progress over the last 40 years. And even if children don't seem to be learning very much from teachers at school, they do seem to be learning quite a lot from each other. What more do you think needs to be done to get there? I don't think it's a question of money. It's more a question of starting to treat education as a political issue rather than a technical one, or rather than purely a technical one, and understanding that the politicians who are in charge of making education policy see education too often as a source of patronage rather than an area of policy where children come first. That's fascinating, John. Thanks so much for coming on. No problem. Cheers, Al. Next, we're imagining a world where the gig economy is taken to the next level. A world where companies rely more and more on outsourced temporary workers assigned by digital platforms, matching the exact skills needed there and then by companies. To understand how this would work and how we would get there, I'm joined in the studio by The Economist's Britain economics correspondent, Callum Williams. Hi, Callum. Hello. So what does the gig economy look like right now in 2018? So what we're really talking about is a labour market that's organised through online platforms, basically. And so this encompasses lots of businesses that people would have heard of, like Uber and Expert360 and TaskRabbit and all that sort of thing. And what this piece does is says, let's imagine that the gig economy gets taken to its logical extreme and that companies of all sorts start to use the sorts of labour that you can get through these platforms and start to make it a kind of core operating principle of their, of their business. In this imagined scenario, you have a fast food restaurant and all of its employees are gig economy workers who are outsourced. But how would that work in practice? Okay, so the example that we use, which is entirely hypothetical, is is McDonald's. And what we basically say is imagine that at the end of every day before the next working day begins, a manager, and that could be the manager of the store or it could be a centrally located manager, in effect puts out adverts for however many positions they need to fill in each store the following day. So let's say the store needs 20 people working there. At 8 o'clock in the evening, 20 adverts will go out across the ether and people will decide that they want to do it or not. It's theoretically possible, particularly if the technology improves and these markets become even more liquid than they are now, so there's even more people getting involved in these markets, that at some point companies like McDonald's or Starbucks or you know any other retailer or restaurant could say, rather than having the hassle of having lots of employees, which means you have to pay them sick pay, you've got to pay them health insurance, you've got to pay them minimum wage, what we'll do is we'll use this super liquid and efficient platform to simply hire and fire people on a daily basis. And so is the advantage of that 
just the bypassing of the kind of operational costs of having actual employees. Is that the big advantage? Is that what McDonald's would be gaining by doing this? That is certainly an advantage. In some countries also, the worker, at least in the short term, has an advantage because what the worker can say is, right, you're not paying my pension anymore, Mr. Employer, Mrs. Employer. You're not paying other sorts of contributions. So therefore, you can perhaps give me a higher hourly wage. So in the short term, it could be good for them. It's also good for firms which face very rapidly changing market conditions. So let's imagine if you think that next week you're going to need 15 people, but the week after that you're going to need 30, and the week after that you're going to need five. This sort of labor market suits you perfectly. So there's actually quite a lot of advantages for employers. Is this going to be better for some people and less good for others? I mean, there's going to be some kinds of work for which it's going to be very hard to write any kind of heuristic to actually search for workers. Yes, that's right. I think the simplest division, as we've touched on before, is between highly skilled and, and less skilled workers. I mean, and you see this now. If you look, for instance, on platforms, I mean, there's a very big one in Australia called Expert 360, which has quite a rigorous screening process to, to list as a worker on that platform. What those workers can do is, you know, in effect, play off different bidders for their labor against one another, drive a hard bargain and make loads of money, travel around the world, work from a laptop, from a cafe or from a hotel or from a beach, and they have a great time. The problem, as you say, particularly in labor markets that some people would say are still quite weak, you're going to have a lot of people competing for a, for a sort of small amount of not particularly skilled jobs, and, and that's going to drive wages down. So what we've seen over the past 30 years or so, the rise in earnings inequality and that kind of thing, the big worry here is that the rise of the gig economy is going gonna, is gonna to exacerbate that trend. Is there any intersection with automation in all of this? Is there a way that this plays into automation that, I mean, obviously, if if there's a bunch of jobs that there's just loads of people who want to do it and you can pay them pittance for that, then there's never going to be any incentive to automate McDonald's jobs. And yet we do see McDonald's as being automated, especially in the UK. There's Almost all of them have these screens now and it's much more automatic and there's fewer employees. How do those two trends play together? Now, I think the thing to watch out for, perhaps, is... As you say, and this is shown out in in the economic kind of history as well, what tends to promote innovation and automation and adoption of technology is high wage costs. And this is an argument that's been put forward, say, for the reason why England industrialized before any other country, although it's a controversial question. But that is certainly one argument. Now, let's imagine that we see this rise of the gig economy. And the result is that at the bottom of the labor market, we see quite severe downward pressure on the wages of workers at the bottom. That could theoretically stop automation in its tracks. That might be slightly too strong an argument, but I mean, certainly it could limit it or limit the speed at which certain tasks are automated. And I suppose there is an argument, therefore, that in a kind of quite kind of perverse way, the rise of the gig economy could be kind of quite good for workers if it limits automation, which everyone's kind of scared about, you know, is worried it's going to lead to mass unemployment. So that's certainly something to keep an eye on. It's fascinating. It's a balance, isn't it? Callum, thank you so much for coming on. It's been really great talking to you. Thank you. For our final segment, I've escaped the office and come to Lao Cafe, where I'm going to talk to Tom Standage, our deputy editor, about the future of food. Hello, Tom. Hello. So we've got three different sorts of insects in front of us here, Tom. Why are we going to be eating insects in the future? Well, maybe we won't all be eating insects, but I think insects are a very interesting possibility of something that might be much more widely consumed later this century because they're kind of such an ideal foodstuff in so many ways. They're very, very high in protein. There's hundreds of possible insect species that we could eat. Lots of people in the world already eat them. It's kind of 
regarded as a bit weird in the West, but actually um, something like two billion people already eat bugs of some form or another. And so I think this is something that we in the West possibly need to rethink our attitudes towards and a lot of this is cultural i mean the fact that we eat shrimps and prawns which are regarded as insects in some other cultures in europe ought to mean that maybe we should be open to uh, eating what have we got here we've got some sort of silkworms and we've got grasshoppers and we've got crickets and i'm sure not everybody would jump at the opportunity to eat them but this is just the sort of thing where i think we might need to rethink the way we feel about our willingness to eat them. Are there any ways that, you know, that we think in future people might get around this disgust factor, you know, instead of having to eat a whole bug and just pop it in your mouth, you know, are there other ways to deal with this? Well, one of the obvious things you could do is you can use insects as a source of protein and you can put them in, say, a pasta sauce and it might be a sort of chicken-flavoured pasta sauce or something like that and you get it in a jar or it comes out of some, you know, food-making machine that you have in the future and actually the protein source has been insects. So that would be a way of kind of hiding it directly. Of course, the big advantage of using insects is that they can turn almost anything, a bit like sort of goats and pigs can. And potentially, they're a much more environmentally friendly protein source than, in particular, beef farming, which is amazingly emissions intensive. And you get a lot of methane coming from cows, which is an amazingly strong greenhouse gas. So if we could find a way to scale up insect production, it could potentially be very, very good for the environment and a much greener source of protein than, than the sorts of things we eat now. And we've just been delivered these dishes, which have insects in them. They kind of look like salads. And um, to, to tell us a little bit about these, we're joined by Saipan Ma, who's the owner of Lao Cafe. Saipan, what can you tell us about these two dishes? So these two dishes is the one is mixed cricket and grasshopper with spicy stir fry, parsley leaf. And then another one is a very, very healthy, is the uh, mixed box salad. Well, healthy looks good. Do you want to try the healthy one first, Tom? Okay, I'll try the healthy one. Does that mean the other one's less? Well, right. it's this one kind of looks a little, it looks a little fattier, which, which seems like a good thing. Do insects do insects have a lot of fat in them when you're cooking them? Do you need to? We don't we don't really put a lot of fat in okay. them because they already have the fat in the in there. Okay. Mmm, this is really good because this um so I've got this sort of salad here and it's got spring onion, a bit yeah. of chili, mm. um, yeah. a bit of red onion, yeah. and then it's got these bugs and peanuts and so you've yes. got this lovely mixture of. Um, of crunchiness mm. and then the uh, the freshness and the spiciness of the chili it's, uh, it's a really good combination I'm guessing I haven't tried yours yet Tom but I'm guessing mine is a little bit heavier mine has a kind of meatier umami kind of a taste but with the spicy and the soy and there's an insect leg which is fine so normally <laughs> just normal it's like a fish rice. bone you we eat that with rice the, the legs everything everything okay yeah. oh normally this would have some rice yes oh I see okay so insects were, at least these insects were at least at one point alive, but there is another kind of alternative protein that's sort of in the mix, in the discussion, that is completely artificial meat grown in a vat and sort of made into a patty or a steak or a mince or something like that. What, what sort of prospect for that? Well, that, again, is an area where there's been a lot of progress recently. So I think um, the famous figure was the first artificial burger that was grown from stem cells in a vat cost something like $300,000 to make, which is obviously not something that you're going to see on, on menus anytime soon. But the price is coming down very quickly now, and, and there are plant-based artificial meats as well. There's a big argument going on about whether you're even allowed to call them meat. But they're getting better and better. They're getting closer and closer to being sort of realistic and plausible substitutes for meat. And they're at, even at the lowest end, they're still sort of two or three times the cost of meat, but they're starting to get competitive. And what I think is interesting there is, if you think think about how attitudes change in a different way. Obviously, there are 
lots of people already who won't eat meat on ethical grounds. But there are lots of people who like eating meat, and I'm one of them. And I kind of sometimes wonder whether I'm blinding myself to the sort of ethical implications of, of this. And if there was an option for me to sort of have my steak and eat it, as it were, which is that it could be something that tasted exactly like bacon or steak or whatever other kind of meat I want, but it was grown in a way that didn't involve killing 65 billion animals a year, which is what happens at the moment in livestock farming then, you know, I'd probably take that deal. If it costs the same and tastes better, that would be great. So I think it's very, very possible that we might see as the the quality of artificial meat goes up and the price comes down, uh, that we might see one of these sort of ethical flips where there is a, a big shift uh, in attitudes towards the acceptability of eating meat and artificial meat becomes far more widespread. And people look back in horror at, you know, for thousands of years we were barbarians that killed animals in order to feed ourselves. Well, that's great. Uh, Tom, thanks very much for talking to me. Thank you. And that's all for this edition of The World Ahead. You can find out more about these stories at economist.com slash worldif. And if you enjoy our journalism, why not consider taking out a subscription to The Economist? Just go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12.